The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for joining us on this fine Wednesday. Uh, we are excited, excited, excited to have Dr. Dabu uh, with us today on Nature of Business. Dr. Juan Jose Dabu is the founding executive officer of the Global Adaptation Institute. And prior to this, he was the former managing director of the World Bank from 2006 to 2010. He launched the Global Adaptation Institute in 2010, and this is a nonprofit dedicated to building resilience against climate change and other global forces. Welcome, Dr. Dabu. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. My pleasure as well. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the Institute. Um, I'm very, very excited to have our listeners learn more about what you are doing and what the Institute is trying to do with uh, climate change adaptation. Well, I think you made a great introduction. Uh, from my experience, when I was at the, at the World Bank as managing director, where I was responsible for uh, operations in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and Latin America, I learned that uh, a lot of emphasis was given to um, issues related to mitigation, but very little, if any, to adaptation. And as it happens, developing countries are much more focused on what is happening today uh, more than what will happen in 20 or 30 years down the road. That's just a basic fact of life for many leaders in developing countries. So we uh, created the Global Adaptation Institute with the idea of doing what others can't do. Second, to bring the private sector to the table. Third, to raise the awareness of the urgency to act, because it is not compassion unless it really works, and many things are not working right now, and fourth, to provide pragmatic solutions. That's a little bit of the story behind the Global Adaptation Institute with one focus in mind, and that is people, concretely, to save people's lives and improve their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. So... Let's talk about adaptation versus mitigation. So the argument would be that, that um, to just to play devil's advocate here, that, that to, mitigation is actually trying to obviously mitigate the, the climate change issue and to take measures. And the, people may argue that is adaptation saying, well, there's no way we can stop it, so we might as well just adapt. How do you answer that? Uh, very simple and I'm going to uh, explain also myself. There is not going to be a global agreement on mitigation in the near future, yet people are already experiencing the effects of urbanization, population growth, economic development, and the effects of climate change. What we see in many parts of the world, and, and, and this is a shame, but what is happening is that many of the political leaders are not thinking about the next generation, but about the next election. Now, the climate is changing, and those changes are affecting hundreds of millions of people right now. So taking action on, on climate adaptation is really urgent, and our approach is really to bring together everybody who agrees on that one key thing, the urgency of adaptation action. And then, you know, we set aside all other areas of disagreement on the climate issue because becoming a part of this conflict will only slow down our ability to help people who are facing urgent needs right now 
and cannot, as I said earlier, wait for 20 years for a solution. So our mission as an organization is to focus on resources to move quickly with concrete action. Our commitment is to stay out of, 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 you know, of politics. Uh, and, and again, I learned this uh, in my many years in government. I worked for three different administrations in my own country, El Salvador, without belonging to any political party. And as I said earlier also, in my relationship with over 110 countries throughout the world, I see that most climate groups have been entirely dedicated to mitigation strategies. These groups have often found themselves using time and resources, analyzing and debating the causes and prevention of climate change, but that is not our role, and we are not part of that debate. Our purpose is to support immediate, effective action on climate adaptation as an urgent priority. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a just, just, just by analogy, there can exist a group of dedicating, you know, organizations preventing diabetes and another group dedicated to helping the blind. Neither group opposes the other. Neither wants the other group to fail. These groups wish each other well and acknowledge that they do different things, but with a common purpose of improving health and shared value of protecting human life. So that's how we see the topic. So I think I think that that is a very you know important obviously a very important aspect of this and one of the things that really struck me is that that in in doing my research is that you you are not debating uh, whether climate you're not in the business of debating whether climate change exists or not and I think that when you step out of that debate and just deal with the issues that are, as you say, the immediate issues at hand, it's very liberating because you are connecting people regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their, their, um, you know, their, their priorities, and you are bringing people together to make real changes. Now, give us an example of what, 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 what does this mean? I know that the, that that certain countries or you know, every country is dealing with this in, in different ways. Give us a concrete example of, of what, what you do. Well, you know, one of the first things we debated uh, internally, and we also invited representatives from civil society, the private sector, and scientists, was, well, is there a common understanding of what adaptation is? And two, uh, how can we really make a difference? And on the first part, we still, as of today, encounter that many people, um, when they start talking or they, when they refer to adaptation, at the end, many of them are really talking about mitigation. Uh, and only until you bring things to the local level instead of the global level is when people start to realize the flooding, the drought, the lack of food, the lack of fertilizers, the lack of infrastructure to move products around that will again help save lives and livelihoods, that they understand the concept of adaptation. And actually, uh, for many people, it's something very close to sustainable development. And the other aspect of, of how can we somehow uh, help in this process of education and, le and, and raising the level of awareness about the urgency was that uh, we needed to have some way of measuring the uh, effects of population growth, economic development, urbanization, and the effects of climate change in a way that not only 
you accounted for the vulnerabilities that are embedded or are natural for many countries, but at the same time that you were able to measure how ready the countries were to actually absorb the investments that were needed to minimize the vulnerabilities or increase the resilience. And so we decided, therefore, to focus on developing matrix, on developing what is now the Global Adaptation Index, which is a navigation tool that we believe will be very useful, and it is being very useful, and I'll tell you a little bit more about some experiences we have had thus far, for people in the private sector, public policymakers, civil society, and scientists. It is a ranking that actually uh, tells you where countries are and where they have been in the last 15 years in terms of their vulnerability and their readiness. It is also a matrix that allows you to compare countries based on 38 indicators, and it is a decision-making tool that actually allows policymakers to implement the right public policies, to prioritize investments on adaptation, and it also allows to identify the obstacles that are inhibiting the private sector to invest, to invest and create jobs in many countries throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And this index you was just launched this, this fall, is that correct? Yes, we launched it on September the 14th uh, here in Washington, D.C., and after that, we have, uh, we have been in the rollout of the index. That means we have been presenting it to many stakeholders, both in the United States as well as in Europe, in Latin America, uh, in Russia, uh, and in many other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. It's pretty – I have to say it's very impressive. Uh, I, I, when I took a look at it um, – it's very user friendly, which I think is very important. And obviously, the the proof is going to be in the pudding. But I think that 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 uh, this is a tool that is that is very much needed because uh, it's practical. And when you when when I read statistics such as your home country of El Salvador, um, that you state that eighty eight percent of of your home country is vulnerable to climate change. Give me an example of where you see this uh, rolling out, let's say, in the next year. Yes, uh, and, and, and first of all, let me address the part about El Salvador. El Salvador is a very small country in the center of Central America, 21,000 square kilometers. That's about the size of Rhode Island, and we have about 6 million people. That's about the population of North Carolina. Mm. It's a very small country. It's very vulnerable. It has 88 active volcanoes. We have an earthquake almost mathematically every 14 years, and we have a tropical storm or a hurricane almost every year. Uh, Again, having been in government there for 12 years, uh, I learned firsthand about the needs that people have, but also how to minimize the impact and how to prevent uh, for the next, when the next disaster happens. And I'm happy to report that the last very big hurricane that was the Mitch uh, tropical storm in 1998 mm-hmm. caused uh, a lot of uh, devastation, including the death of, uh, I believe, about a thousand people. Just four weeks ago, a month ago, we had the Hoba uh, uh, tropical storm, which was about one and a half times stronger than Mitch, and yet only 56 people die. I said only, I mean, that one life is, is still very valuable, but just to compare sure. 10 years later, 12 years later, 
from a thousand to fifty six people uh, in a larger magnitude of a, of a storm shows that some progress has been made. When you look at the global adaptation index as you have uh, a very user friendly tool, you can see in each of the indicators both on the vulnerability uh, column and on the readiness column uh, how uh, flooding, how um, uh, the geographical condition of a country uh, impacts people's lives, but also from there you can also draw conclusions as to what are the most challenging uh, uh, areas, whether it is food, whether it is water, whether it is infrastructure, coastal protection, etc. And that's what we are trying to do in this phase of the rollout, not only to uh, show the navigation tool and how one might be able to use it, but we are bringing practitioners, leaders from the public sector and the private sector who have faced challenge almost on daily basis, in my case, for 12 years, but we have the former president of Spain, the former president of Bolivia. We have people from the private sector who for many years have been investing in countries that have situations similar to, to the one I just described to you in El Salvador, and they have learned uh, how to get the grassroots support to implement the public policies in the case of the public sector actors, and also in the case of the private sector, how to identify the risks, how to mitigate those risks, and how to still get a decent return on investment while also doing good by creating jobs and enhancing the living conditions of the people of the countries we want to touch, we want to impact. I have been since September the 14th in Romania, in Bucharest, where we met with over 300 members of the European Parliament, including the prime ministers and the presidents of the countries around Romania, where we discussed energy policies, for example, of the Black Sea, and the tool that we created, the Global Adaptation Index, became the center of the conversation where uh, ministers of the environment, uh, members of parliament, were precisely discussing how those countries around the Black Sea have evolved in the last 15 years, both in terms of their vulnerabilities and in terms of their capacity to adapt or their readiness. I went to Germany afterwards. I have been to, to Russia already, where we met with the Sherpas of the G20 that were there uh, meeting on issues related to adaptation. And through a partnership with Carnegie Endowment, we presented to them uh, the tool, and they found it extremely fascinating. And again, this is a tool. It's not an answer, uh, right. but a tool that can help address many of the problems that countries are facing, as well as which solutions have proven to work in those countries that are ahead of the game. Oh, it's fascinating. I, I love it. It's fascinating. I know that you travel a lot and you have been um, out, out really around the globe, Dr. Dabu. Um, and I'm fascinated to hear that the, the actual, the index is, is, is gaining notoriety and that people uh, find that it is something that is utilitarian, that is very much needed as we face climate change, you know, adaptation issues uh, as, as, as the climate changes. And it's an, it's, it's a relatively undebatable issue at this point. Do you, do you see that across in your, in your global travels? I mean, I, I feel like when I see, when I talk to people, there's not much debate anymore. I mean, there's a few people, but, but most people agree that there is, you know, there is a climate change issue. What do you see globally? 
what I see globally, uh, especially in developing countries, is that for some time now, uh, they were ignored or their needs were really not taken into account uh, in, the, in many of the debates. Uh, and when you go, for example, to Uganda, as I have been with President Museveni, or to Rwanda with President Kagame, and you, you, you talk to them about, for example, uh, clean energy and the importance of mitigation, they acknowledge, they agree that it is important. But for example, President Museveni of Uganda was telling me, look, less than 5% of the population of Uganda has access to energy. So how much more clean or effective do you want us to be? And so I used to, 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 to say, you know, you're right. You, you, we need to focus on actually getting more people the opportunity of reading a book in the evening, not with a candle, but with a light. And we cannot be, uh, we cannot be ignorant of, of uh, agnostics of the situation that many, many developing countries are in. And so we need to find pragmatic solutions that help resolve the problems today in a way that is harmonious with the environment, but that also helps people uh, raise the level of wealth, uh, and in many cases, actually help them uh, uh, in surviving uh, very difficult situations that they are that they are facing. I have traveled uh, many countries. I think last time I counted, uh, my wife keeps track of that. It's about 90 countries I have been able to visit, and more than a visit, I have gone and seen. Uh, people in, 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 in very challenging situations. I live for all of my life, 40 years, uh, in a country that had a civil war, that had earthquakes, as I said before, every 14 years, and all of the other natural disasters. And so I understand uh, yeah, their problem. I, I identify with their problems. But more importantly, I'm trying to focus on the solutions. Let me also say that, as we speak, uh, our chief scientist, Ian Noble, has just finished uh, 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 several visits in the Middle East, including the Gulf countries and some other countries in the Maghreb and in the Mashrek area. Our director of science in technology arrived this morning at 3 a.m. in Durban, South Africa, to uh, bring the voice of adaptation uh, to the fora early this month through the Tecnológico de Monterrey, one of the largest universities in Mexico and for that matter in Latin America, and us had a very large event where we had 33 universities in Mexico plus 12 universities throughout Latin America uh, presenting the Global Adaptation Index. Just two weeks ago, I was with Andres Oppenheimer and, and Ban Ki-moon in a program talking about adaptation, uh, the Secretary General of the UN and Andres Oppenheimer, a famous uh, Latin American um, uh, writer. Uh, and so we have been really very passionate about this trying not only to raise the level of awareness, but presenting a tool that we believe can help address many of the problems that countries have today. Let's talk about the, let's talk about the U.S. because I'm, I'm always, you know, just reading, reading news today, for instance, it talks about how there's little hope for reaching accordance in, you know, in Durban for the, these climate talks. How, how, how does it, affect what you do in your mission that you are coming from the United States and representing the United States in this debate and cl about climate change? 
Well, uh, first, let me say that uh, uh, we cannot uh, say that we represent the United States in the sense that uh, the Global Adaptation Institute, as, as its name implies, is global. And mm -hmm. as our mission finds, we are primarily focused on developing countries. Having said that, what happens in developed countries impacts, affects, but also creates the opportunities for helping developing countries. We see very clearly the important partnership that needs to be developed between developing countries and developed countries, especially on issues that have no boundaries. And uh, population growth, economic development, urbanization, and the effects of climate change do not recognize visas or passports. It is about uh, uh, people's lives wherever they are, and therefore, that's what we are trying to, that's the message that we are trying to give. And more concretely, we have found throughout our research and through the work that we have done in the index that between 1995 and 2010, 68 out of 175 countries in the world have consistently shown better than expected achievements in adaptation than other countries of comparable wealth. Of those EA countries, 29 are in Europe, 15 are in Asia, 13 are in Africa, which is an interesting surprise, and 10 are in the Americas, only one in the Middle East. That's where there is a great challenge. Another 37 countries have achieved better than expected results in adaptation than countries of comparable wealth in most of the 16 years. And if we look at the Americas, which was part of your question, the vast majority of the countries in the Americas, that's North America, Central America, and South America, uh, are ready to face many adaptation challenges. In other words, countries like the United States, Canada, Chile, Uruguay, Barbados, Argentina, San Vincent the Grenadines, Panama, Costa Rica, and Mexico uh, are among the top 10 countries in the Global Adaptation Index. And among these leaders, however, Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, El Salvador, the, the United States, uh, and Costa Rica have in fact done much better than expected in terms of the scores that the Global Adaptation Index has. Whereas Cuba, Bahamas, Trinidad, Tobago, Dominica, Venezuela, and Suriname, on the other hand, have consistently performed below what was expected for countries of their individual economic size. Wow. That's that's fascinating. I mean, that, that, that that's absolutely fascinating to me. I have one I have one more question for you. Then we're going to have to wrap up. And I wanted to talk to you um, about your team because it's pretty impressive. And you know, and I, I mentioned that that you know you are coming from the, the U.S. And I, I think that I say that in the sense that, of course, you're located in Washington D.C. and 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 but you are a global uh, a global institute with a very global message. And I liked your your uh, the image of sort of checking your passport at the door because these are obviously there are no boundaries when it comes to climate change. Talk about your team and the team you've put together at the Institute. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let me start by our chief scientist, uh, Dr. Ian Noble. He's from Australia. He was, as of March of this year, the lead scientist on climate change-related matters at the World Bank. And after he retired, he joined us. We have Dr. Bruno Sanchez from Spain. 
he is a former NASA rocket scientist, uh, and he's our director of science and technology. We have Davis uh, Cherry, who comes from WRI, one of the, again, a very important organizations that are there on issues related to to climate change uh, uh, broadly. Uh, we have uh, in the administrative and in the development side people that have been extraordinary in terms of their previous experiences, including our vice president of development, who used to be, who, who used to do that job at the Red Cross uh, working for uh, Ms. Elizabeth Doll. As importantly, we have the chairman of our advisory council, the former president of Spain, Jose Maria Aznar, uh, as our chairman of the board, uh, the very successful businessman, Mr. Ken Hirsch, uh, we also have uh, 22 of the top 25 scientists of the world that help us develop the Global Adaptation Index. Nine of them are members of our Council of Scientists, including um, uh, uh, not only scientists on the, if you want, environmental side, but also on the economic front, because as you, as, as I mentioned before, we care about the vulnerability and the readiness part. So if we're looking at the two axes, I need to have scientists from uh, the two sides of those axes. I have also been able, we have also been able to attract very successful business leaders to our meetings uh, and also to our board of advisors. These are people that have succeeded in the IT business, in the entrepreneurship, uh, in the uh, social corporate responsibility side, in the financial sector, uh, in the food industry, and in many other sectors that are extremely relevant for food, agriculture, energy, coastal protection, and water, which are the topics we are trying to address. I want to say that the people that uh, we have been able to to attract to the institute that are helping not only with their time but also in many cases with their money in a very substantial way, like NGP that has provided ten million dollars as a seed capital for the institute. These people that are helping us are performers and not pretenders, which is a big difference between what the Global Adaptation Institute can deliver and what others are attempting to do. All of the people I have mentioned to you throughout their life have in their countries or in their companies or as scientists made a difference between providing handouts and creating opportunities to people to take destiny into their own hands. And even though that might sound to you a little bit philosophical, I think it's very important to recognize that if we are able to have that vision while bringing the practitioners that have the hands-on experience, I think we have the perfect combination to help in this endeavor of raising the level of awareness uh, about the urgency to act on issues related to adaptation to climate change and other global trends. We are here to do that. We are here to par partner with others. And we are very appreciative of the platform that you are offering to us by allowing us to express our voice to express our ideas, even if it is with a very strong accent like mine. Oh, you have a wonderful oh, wow. accent. No, no. <laughs> I love it. Um, I have a feeling that we're going to be hearing quite a bit about the Global Adaptation Institute in, in the years to come, and, and as you as well, Dr. Dabu. Thank you so very much for everything, and I will uh, do my part to get the word out as well. Thank you very much, and I look forward to 
speaking to you again and to your audience. And uh, let's uh, keep our finger crossed that uh, uh, not only at Durban, but uh, throughout the year and through the many efforts that are out there, we are able to help, uh, uh, you know, save lives and livelihoods to people. Thank you very much. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.